0: Today's episode is brought to you by Pin Peddlers. Are you crafting crazy, a lover of all things quilting and sewing? Share your passion for creativity in what you wear. Pin Peddlers is the place to choose pins, charms, and jewelry to make the perfect creative statement. Use the code NAPS, N-A-P-S, to save 15% off your next stock order at Pin Peddlers. Love what you do, wear what you love. Thank you so much, Pin Peddlers. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 109 of the Walshe Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about building a sewing community with my guest, Shay Henderson. A former middle school math teacher, Shay now owns Empty Bobbin Sewing Studio, a sewing and quilt pattern company. She's the author of the award winning book, School of Sewing Learn It, Teach It, Sew Together. And her work has been featured in several books and magazines. She's also one of the founding members and a former president of the Kansas City Modern Quilt Guild. She lives in Kansas City with her husband and three children, and you can find more of her work at emptybobbinsewing.com and on Instagram at EmptyBobbin. Shay Henderson, welcome. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I know. We've been online friends for (laughs) a while, a couple of years, I think. And so it's great to have the chance to sit down and really talk. And so let's start from the beginning. So um, are you always, have you always been a Kansas City resident or where did you grow up? I grew up in a smaller community
1: about an hour north of Kansas City, and met my husband in college um, at a state university here in Missouri, and we've lived in Kansas City pretty much ever since. We had a small one-year stint in San Diego with a job he had, um, but we've always kind of been Kansas City people.
0: Got it. And what did your parents do for a living when you were growing up?
1: Uh, my mom is a middle school teacher because apples don't fall far from trees. So um, she is a middle school teacher, is retired for many years now. And my dad owns a landscaping company in our hometown. Okay, so that's kind of my story. Yeah, yeah. little entrepreneur, a little teaching. So. Yeah, I
0: know, right? It's interesting yeah. to see how this all comes yeah. comes together. And yes. uh, and landscaping's got that creativity as does teaching, mm-hmm. uh, as well. So, and did you have siblings?
1: Yes, I have one younger sister, so she's six years younger than me. So mm-hmm. I just have a sister and my husband just has a brother. So we've got some smaller.
0: hmm. Families. Mm -hmm. And what did you study when you went to college and met your husband? Were you, I know you um, taught math, so were you a math major or did you study something else? I had several majors, (laughs) (laughs) but not as bad as my mom was when she
1: was in school. She said her her grandma used to tell her she was a member of the major of the month club. (laughs) (laughs) I uh, started out as a photography major and I decided I didn't really want to do it as a business. I just loved photography in general. So um, then I switched maybe one or two more times, but I eventually stopped at um, middle school education and it's with a minor in math. So I decided middle school is where I wanted to be. I had worked at a camp when I was, um, just out of high school, a student council leadership camp in Missouri. It's amazing. And I had so much fun with middle school kids that I thought, I just, I have a special love for middle school kids. So most people think that's crazy, but.
0: <laughs> I don't because I, I also <laughs> have, I share that love because I also yes. taught middle school. Um, and I d- definitely heard people say to me, oh God, that, that age is the worst. And I'm uh-huh. like, no, it's the best. <laughs>
2: it is.
1: It is the best. I mean, you have to have a little bit of middle school left in you, but uh, I think middle school's
0: fantastic. So yeah, I do too. I really like that age. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting that you studied photography because I I just took some photography classes in high school, but I I feel like now, um, we find ourselves in this moment in which photography is so incredibly important, um, In almost every business, no matter what kind of business you're running, because you need this social media presence. And so much of doing that well is about Quality photography. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. funny because I feel like, you know, when we were younger, it was really something people did maybe as a hobby or it was going to be a professional career. Mm -hmm. But now it's really a skill that everybody needs. Right. And just the rise of digital photography versus film,
1: you know, made it more affordable in so many ways because you could try and experiment with your camera, whereas you had to wait for so long and, you know, film. You only had so many frames. So it's it's been interesting to see it happen because I started my made when I was majoring in photography, uh, it was still film and starting to become digital. So like we still had the dark room, you know. So um I would love for my kids to learn to work a dark work in a dark room one day just because I think it's um I think it's an interesting skill to to know and understand and know how far it's come and how easy it is to use your digital camera now. But um just an appreciation for that I think is important too.
0: Yeah. That's almost become like an art form piece of it Mm -hmm. because it's more tactile. Yes. That my classes were also in the dark room. So, um, (laughs) we're, we're dating ourselves. ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So out of college, did you, um, do student teaching and then just got a a job as a middle school math teacher? actually did my student
1: teaching in the building where I ended up teaching. So I've only really been in one school. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. And how long
1: were you there? I was there for seven years and this will be my eighth year out. So
0: it's almost seems like a former lifetime ago, but yeah, I I absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such an interesting thing when that happens. So the the period of time when you had a traditional job becomes shorter in the yes. period of time that you've had a non-traditional job. Um, yes. and that happened, Year. yeah, that <laughs> happened for me as well. And it's like, wow, I've been out of the workforce for, you know, 13 years or something. <laughs> but then again, of course I'm in the workforce, but it's just such a different kind of work. Yes, it is different. It just, it just feels like a different, like it was a
1: different life. Like it what I mean, it was, was amazing. And I, people ask if I'll go back and I always say, I don't know, cause I never really imagined leaving it. So, um, I just, I would learn to say, never say never. I don't know.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Life has seasons. So why yeah. did you, why did you leave? What was that transition like? Right. I never imagined leaving. I thought I viewed myself
1: as a lifelong teacher. Um, my husband at the time, my husband at the time, he's still my husband. <laughs> at that time, my husband was um, a consultant and was traveling all the time. And so he was gone Monday through Thursday and we'd had two um, children very close in age Um, and I just knew that I was going to be a bad wife or a bad mom or a bad teacher. And I could give up one of those things, but I couldn't give up the other two. So, um, I decided with him to stay home and that's kind of, um, when it happened, it was after our second child was born.
0: So, okay. And before the third one came, so, mm -hmm. okay. So yeah, I can relate to that feeling for sure. (laughs) Um, you know, and it's also, uh, frankly, I found to be difficult when you are a teacher um, because the amount of money that you're earning in comparison, to the amount of money you would have to pay a child care provider, um, especially once you have more than one child, yes. that balance really <laughs> yeah. is, you know, you end up basically working and, and someone, not making any money.
1: Yeah, yeah. Our, we have our t- all two oldest kids are 16 months apart. So two little kids in daycare is, you know, it's not not
0: cheap. So yeah,
1: yeah, also a contributing factor.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's somewhat different if your, if your job is like a really big income earner, obviously there's other, um, things that you get from a job besides money, but, um, right. Yeah. yeah. But did you have, I mean, it sounds like you really enjoy teaching and being in the classroom and and yeah, Yeah. it's so stimulating. And it also Mm -hmm. is really an identity, you know, where you're the teacher. (laughs) Um, so was there like, I don't know, kind of an identity shift for you when that transition oh, yeah. happens.
1: Yeah, actually funny funny, my husband and I were just having a conversation about this just this weekend about, you know, a sh- shift of identity, you know. Uh so um yeah, it really was. It was a part of a big part of who I was. We will say, Oh, so you know, tell me about yourself. Well, the first thing you say is kind of what you do typically, um, that and about your family. So yeah, it was it was different, different feeling for sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But it definitely where we both felt like it was Wholeheartedly, the right thing to do. And I, I don't regret one bit of leaving. So, yeah. I miss, I miss it, but I don't regret it. Um, and I love now being able to go
0: help in my kids' classrooms or help in other friends' classrooms and things like that. So, mm-hmm. okay. So, you started um, sewing at some point along the way, because I don't hear sewing as being something that, you know, you didn't want to be a fashion designer or something like that (laughs) in college. And so, so talk a little bit about your sort of sewing training or sewing history, you know, throughout your life. Gotcha. Well, I grew up, um, my mom, knew how to sew like she made her own rehearsal
1: dinner dress you know she made a lot of her own formals she grew up sewing a lot of apparel and then would make a lot of our halloween costumes and make certain things for our house she'd not made a quilt i think i actually made my first quilt before my mom made her first quilt which is kind of interesting um but i always grew up with her uh, working on her sewing machine and um she taught me here and there you know some things i didn't really want to hear about pressing and how important that was (laughs) I was like, whatever, mom, you know, like you don't want to listen to the thing that you think is um, not important. And uh, then I was in high school and my grandmother helped me make a quilt in secret for my parents. And it was a photo quilt, a picture quilt um, of Christmas pictures. And this was before, (laughs) like when I think back now to how you did, how I did it, it was the most ridiculous process. It was you couldn't just print on Spoonflower. It was, you had to get the pictures color copied in mirror image, like you couldn't get the regular picture, you had to do mirror image, because if it had any words, when you transfer it fabric, it'd be backwards. So You had to get a mirror image color copy of any picture you wanted. You put this glue pasty stuff on it, and then you pressed that onto fabric, let it dry, and then once it was dry, you soaked it off with uh, a sponge to peel it—basically peel off the paper—so that what was left was the color ink glued to the fabric. <laughs> that was—it was insane. And so I snuck up to my grandparents' house one weekend, and they helped me make a quilt. And so then I just kind of got addicted to learning how to make things, and um, it got really more of it to be more of a passion and late college. And right after my husband and I got married, um, because everybody I was working with was having a baby. And, you know, I rather innocently thought I'll just make everybody a baby quilt. That's doesn't take that much money in fabric. (laughs) So I've made a, you've learned a lot when you make a lot of baby quilts in a very short period of time. And, um, I, I kind of got the bug then for quilting over over anything. And that was right about the time, I was like in 2005, when the, um, the big books that I think of as pivotal and influential for me, um, and many people I think say, say the same books, was um, Modern Quilt Workshop from Weeks, Ringel and Bill Kerr, and Denise Schmidt Quilts, when those came out, uh, I was like,
0: these are the books that this is exactly what I want to make. So uh, yeah, which by the way, I have both of those books and bought them both when they came out and they're sitting here still on my shelf. So yeah,
1: those are not going anywhere. I will Mm -hmm. never, ever, ever give those away.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. So, so those baby quilts, were you using patterns from those books or were you using a traditional block or were you sort of designing them from the start? Well, the first ones I made were before those
1: books came out. So I made some of them from traditional blocks. And then toward the end of the baby quilt (laughs) phase, I um, had both of those books. So several of them were made from, like made a lot of uh, quilts from those two books.
0: Yeah. And I think that you have a really good point there, which is that um, making a lot of something um, <laughs> teaches you a lot, you know, yeah. and sometimes I feel like we give up so soon where yeah. we run into a frustration or it doesn't come out the way we had it envisioned in our minds. And then we think, well, I'm no good at this. Um, right. But really, if you made, you know, 15 more of them, you would get good at it, you know.
1: Exactly. In fact, the funny thing is, one of the people who got one of the very first baby quilts. my friend Sarah who actually ended up later on taking the pictures for the covers of my patterns and I think oh my gosh if I could go back and redo (laughs) baby quilt for her daughter who's now in middle school you know uh it would be it'd be good to have a redo
0: but you know always everybody's got to have their early work (laughs) yeah and at that moment that was what you could do and you were happy enough with it that you gave it to her so oh yeah yeah, yeah, totally. And so, okay. So you started, um, you started making these quilts and then, and got these two very, you know, influential books that really changed the way people thought about, or at least many people thought about quilting. Um, And so you started a blog as well in 2007, Empty mm-hmm. Bobbin Sewing Studio. What was the mm-hmm. impetus for starting the blog?
1: You know, I think it was because i had found uh, the pool on Flickr, Fresh Modern Quilts, and I, Th- saw there were other people out there making the kinds of quilts I loved to make and there were other you know bags and things too but mostly quilts and I didn't know anyone um who loved to sew the things I love to sew other than my own mom and I for a long time it took me a very long time to use my name I was kind of like this anonymous <laughs> over an empty bobbin made this, you know? Like, yeah. I mean, well, it's hard, I, you
0: know, it's hard for people to get back to that time on the yeah. internet. But, yeah. um, first I just want to say that that flicker pool, um, was so influential and you're mm-hmm. not the first person oh, mm-hmm. on this podcast who oh, sure. <laughs> was introduced to modern quilting through that pool. And, um, and I think it's too true too, that, we you know, we can trace at least to a degree the modern quilt movement and the modern oh, quilt guild completely. to that flicker pool. Mm-hmm.
2: Completely. With, completely. Yeah.
0: Like I think
1: Elisa may have been one of the first people, Elisa Haight-Carlton may have been one of the first people to comment on my blog. She and Kathy Mack, who used to own Pink Chalk Fabrics. Yeah. I, I just like, it's, it's, goes way back. So, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely. And so, and back then, yes, um, people were anonymous or (laughs) they used kind of, um, you know, a a name for themselves that was like their name, but wasn't their name. So I was Abby Jane, my middle name is (laughs) Jane. And that was my name everywhere. Like I didn't use my actual last name. And then at some point it sort of shifted. So Right. right. At some point it's like, you know what, this is, this
1: is, you know, who I am. And part of it was, I taught middle school students, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to have a little anonymity, like you know, googling my name or whatever. I just I wanted to have just a little piece that was just me that you know I could share what I wanted and um, put stuff out there. And I love I just loved that community. It was it was a wonderful kind of period of life. I didn't have kids yet. I was selling all the time. My husband was starting to travel a lot,
0: so really it was like me and my sewing machine
1: hanging out. So.
0: <laughs> Right. Okay. So you started documenting what you were making. Yes, absolutely. I loved
1: um, having a, a way to record, you know, who I made things for and what I made and what they looked like, because I'm not much of a scrapbooker at all, nor I certainly am not now, but uh, just having it there. Cause once you give a quilt away, you know, it, unless you took pictures of it or jotted some things down, it's just in your memory. And you might forget that you actually made that person a quilt. So mm-hmm. having a record is great.
0: And did you find that um you were building community through that blog from the beginning? I really I thought so because I
1: and what's funny, like um there are people that I am Facebook friends with now that you know we knew each other as blog people, like you know uh, Rebecca Kraft. we would um comment on each other's pictures all the time, and then we finally met for the first time at QuiltCon cool a few years ago, and it was like it would have been like you know we'd been knowing each other on the internet for like ten years <laughs> so. It was kind of funny.
0: Yeah. I always feel like when I go to those events, it's like, um, I feel like in a way you've been following the playbill, you know, for years, like really, yes. really carefully. And then you walk into this room and it's like all the characters are there. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Funny way to put it. Yeah. 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 That's funny. I
1: totally get that. It's yeah. like
0: they walk in and you're like, Oh my gosh, they're real people. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and like it's just fun to talk to somebody that you email back and forth with and um you know, you know what they're making, you know, like their neighbors probably don't know what they're making, but (laughs) you know what they're making. So yeah.
0: Yeah. And blogging is really a wonderful thing that way. So, so you had these two things overlapping, you were teaching Mm -hmm. and blogging at the same time. Um, And so when you left the classroom, did having the blog help you? It did. And at the same time we, I left the classroom was when
1: we did our little one-year stint in San Diego. Like we were kind of living in a temporary apartment um, just for my husband to finish up a contract out there. But for us to be together, except for you know only seeing each other on the weekends, we just put our stuff in storage, sold our house, and moved out there. And so our kids could be with me and him <laughs> and – Uh, It was just us. It was wonderful. It was like this blissful year where there were no big distractions. We weren't going in 15 million different directions. It was just us. But while he was gone and they were napping, you know, um, well, you know, while she naps. Absolutely. (laughs) While while they were napping, uh, I would sew and continue to write. And that's when the seed started for uh, writing patterns because it combined my love of math, my love of teaching, and uh, sewing in my. One of my friends would tell you, it's also my love of telling people what to do. <laughs> I, I like being in charge, but you can be in charge when you write a pattern. You know, you can help people guide them the way that, you know, will get them to a finished product. So,
0: I want to take a moment now to talk about our sponsor, Pin Peddlers. And Kimberly Foreman, who is the sales rep from Pin Peddlers, is here to talk with us. My name is Kim Foreman, and I work for Pin Peddlers. We
2: are a company that makes pins and charms that are hand enameled and done with semi-Cloisonne
0: enamel. Oh, wow. So... They're kind of like the, I mean, enamel pins been hot, right? So they're kind Mm -hmm. of like enamel pins, but made specifically for quilters? We do make uh, pins specifically for
2: quilters. In fact, we're the number one seller of quilting pins and charms. Some of my favorite necklaces we carry right now are a thimble and bobbin necklace that has little chains that hang down from the thimble and bobbin, and people like to collect their charms there.
0: Oh, that's really cute. Yeah, there's some some of the enamel pin designs are also super charming and cool looking. And um, there's one that's like um, kind of an old-fashioned looking sewing machine. I love that mm-hmm. one.
2: That's one of our most popular, along with our sewing machine charm holder that looks like that antique machine. And where are you guys based? We are based in Hamilton, Missouri. We're part of Missouri Star Quilt Company now. The original company, started by Tommy and Audrey Brindle from North Carolina, has been around for over 30 years, and they met the Missouri Star people at quilt shows and wanted to retire and asked if Missouri Star would be wanting to take over the business. Well, we also do um, custom pins and charms. We actually do quite a few quilting businesses, um, guilds, Museums, we do the National Quilt Museum in Paducah. We do all of the pins for quilt market and festivals
0: like at Houston, Chicago, St. Louis. Oh that's so neat. So if a small business listening wanted to have some pins made of their logo or you know just to sell like some a particular design they have in mind, they right. could get in touch and see if that would be possible.
2: Yeah, they sure can.
0: and it's it's something that's really it's
2: small to wear. So it's an easy way to get your branding out there for everyone to see. You can go to pinpeddlers.com and you can also call our 800 number, which is
0: 800-841-8691. Thank you so much, Pin Peddlers. And now back to my conversation with Shay. Yeah, and I want to talk about your print patterns in just a moment, but I sure. do want to touch on the teacher training and the ways that it still is useful for you now, whether you're writing patterns, writing books, actually teaching, you know, mostly probably adults, um, to sew and quilt or, um, working with the Kansas city modern quilt guild or, or whatever it is you do in the sort of sewing sphere, even blogging. Um, can you talk a little bit about, maybe some specific things you learned as a teacher or in teacher training that still um, are relevant in what you do day to day now.
1: Right. Okay. That's a great question. I think that probably the two big things are knowing like um, one of my favorite things to teach in my math classes was problem solving and kids don't know what they don't know (laughs) because when they're working at looking at a problem and they they can't jump to the answer right away because they don't know all the things that will get them there in the middle. Sewing is kind of the same way. Like you see this project you want to make, but you don't realize until you start sewing what it is that you don't know how to do. Um, Like you might think, Oh, there's a zipper. I have to learn how to put a zipper in, but you might not know all the other things that are techniques and things that you need to do to finish the project. So helping people realize what it is that they um, need to understand is, is a big Big deal. Helping you know what you don't know. Like my friend Pam in my sewing classes was like, "How do I know if it's a pro- the problem with the seam is something that I can just you know breeze right on by, or how do I know if it's a problem that I have to unpick the seam and fix it?" So those are things that you just don't know until you start sewing a little bit, and then you start to realize, "Oh, that's a seam that will be hidden. I can I can move past it, or oh, I'm going to have to go back and fix that." So that's one. Another one is visuals. I think that's a really big thing. Um, Not everyone, you know, and everybody, I think everybody understands this, but um, not everyone can just read the text and understand exactly what it is. So a visual is a big thing. So illustrations and pictures were a big thing for me uh, as a teacher and also in the sewing world.
0: Yeah. And I think you're totally right in my experience of teaching sewing as well. Uh, many people who are really real beginners, they get hung up on the perfection of yes. a seam that isn't going to matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're like, well, it's slightly curved and I wanna sit and unpick it. And it's like, well, you're gonna slow down your progress and also your <laughs> enjoyment because yeah. you're not going to get to the next stage. And, you know, you're being hung up on something that's not important. And so knowing what is important is mm-hmm. so hard. Um, you know, so so that's a, a great point. And I have also found um like scaffolding is really important. So yes. um mm-hmm. it's important for people to talk in the beginning about what they think something is and what they already know about it in order for them to hook new information onto that. Because if you fail that to to elicit that information in the beginning, you're presenting new information and people are trying to hook it on to something and you don't know what.
2: (laughs) And sometimes it's
0: the wrong thing. And so it's really important to sort of get all of that out into the room first Um, and that's something I I learned as a teacher. Yeah. Yep. Completely agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel really like blessed that I got that time in the classroom and that, Formal training, um, just because it does help me a lot as I do anything else (laughs) in my life, um, even though I'm not explicitly using it. So, um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about these print patterns. You have a really nice, like, suite of print patterns. You've got many, and they're beautifully photographed and they look really lovely. And I wondered if you could just sort of talk a little bit. For listeners who might want to get into doing print patterns and are wondering, you know, how do I develop one of these and how do I publish one of these? Sort of just talk a little bit about that process and and how it happens. Sure. Um, well, like I said,
1: I, it was for the time when we were living in San Diego and I was sewing some things with some patterns and I, I, I many, most of them, a great many of them and most of them were completely accurate and wonderful and Perfect. And then I sewed with some, and I was thinking to myself, "Well, they just assumed like five steps in between here and there. <laughs> like, what what is going on here?" So I started to think, "I don't know how I know how to sew. I know how to write instructions. I am. Uh, I think I think I'm really great with math. I thought I could I could do this. So I decided to start writing some, and I had some people in my guild uh, test them for me and have my mom, of course, test them for me and kind of just started going from there. It was, um, me and my computer and my sewing machine and emailing back and forth with people. And, uh, Kind of did all, at first, I did all the layout and design and everything myself in Illustrator and in design, and I outsourced the photography. I did have that was one thing I was like, I in the logo, the logo a guy that lived on my floor my freshman year of college. <laughs> he uh, worked in advertising, and at the time, now I could never afford him, but at the time, <laughs> he was doing some freelancing and uh, designed my logo and everything for me. And so, the cover of my cut, my, my, I can't take any credit for the covers. Um, except for the actual product that's being photographed. Uh, and then I had them printed and chipped them from my house and, um, just added some here and there. I don't do them as much anymore because I kind of, kind of like it was a different season <laughs> Yeah. Um, because I had two kids who were napping and now I have three kids and none of them nap, and they're all in every, every kind of activity. So, um, I don't have as much time to devote to it anymore, but, um, I really loved, Doing it, and I, you know, then I, you know, added the PDF component, but the print component came first.
0: Okay, and so you were saying that in the beginning, you did all of the layout um, Mm -hmm. yourself in InDesign and Illustrator, and then did you begin outsourcing that as well?
1: Well, uh, no. uh, For as far as the ones that are printed now, they are all still done um, in the file that I made, and then I mean PDF ones. Just in the last several months, I worked with uh, Christy at Page and Pixel, and she uh, developed a a template for me to kind of update the layout of my PDFs and I need to convert all of my old ones over to the new format and then those will be on the website but um I just wanted them to kind of have a fresh look that I couldn't do myself. So she was awesome. I would yeah. totally plug her for anybody who's <laughs>
0: thinking about that. Absolutely. And Page and Pexel is um, a company that has two people who uh, used to be um, employed at CNT Publishing and now are on their own. And basically, they'll do your photography, they'll do your photo mm-hmm. styling, they'll do the layout and uh, design of the actual pattern, pages. Um, So it's wonderful to have uh, contractors who truly understand quilting um, on your team and who can make your product look professional. And I know that when I first started, I really would look at other people who are already successful and think they had to do all of this themselves. (laughs) And if I can't do all of it myself, then I can't do this. And that's not true. Right.
1: And sometimes you can try to if you want to do it yourself to quote unquote, save money, like time is money. And like the finished look is money. You know, I think that like the photography and the logo, I could have done them myself, but it wouldn't have been nearly what it, what it ended up being. So it's a matter of, you know, deciding how much you could afford to do and pick and choose what things you want to outsource. But I I totally think that there are plenty of people who, uh, work in the space that overlaps enough with sewing to to get it. Uh, like my friend that did our pictures, she was our family photographer, and she her studio was like two blocks down from a fabric shop. So when I asked her if she could take the covers, she got a little nervous. <laughs> but then I walked her down to the to the shop to show her. You know, it needs to be portrait, not landscape, and you've got to have, gotta have some room, leave, leave some space for the the title or the, the name of the project and my logo. And so once she saw some examples then she's like oh yeah we totally got this and then when she did them i was just blown away and i loved what she did so yeah she didn't say it made her more nervous working with a quilt that held still <laughs> than with a family of little kids <laughs> that's funny
0: yeah which you would yeah. think would be all the opposite but um yeah. but yeah i mean product photography is a different beast right mm-hmm. than portrait totally. photography um, mm-hmm. for sure so sometimes a photographer right. would have to shift gears a little bit but yeah. um but i was going to say that uh that i think that um Anyway, you can outsource some of this. You can get yeah. somebody else to help you. And also, I was going to say the photography really sells the product. Totally. So, um, I wasn't going to that up. <laughs> yeah. If you can afford to invest a little bit in the upfront to get professional photos done or you can swap with somebody who can do professional photos for you, um, that then can be consistent from pattern to pattern, you know, as far as quality is concerned or style, um, it does really make a big difference and you're going to make it up in the end in the number of sales you're going to make. So
1: absolutely, yeah, I have, I have done bartering as well. In fact, uh, some of the earlier quilts that I had, um, for one of my earlier patterns, uh, I ended up bartering baby clothes (laughs) or kids clothes with Angela Walters. We live very close to each other. And um, her youngest daughter is just a little bit younger than my oldest. And so she had, you know, needed some kids clothes. And so I was like, I need some quilting. So we, we swapped. So it's totally something that people should look into is, you know,
0: yeah, As, thing? <laughs> especially when you're first starting out and maybe don't have that mm-hmm. capital to put in, you know, from profits that you're already making in the very beginning, you might not have anything to invest. Right. Right. Um, so right. some of those trades do make sense in the, you know, whatever skills you mm-hmm. have in the beginning. Um, so it, it is worth it to, to launch with a professional product Um, so I feel like one of the strengths that you really have is in developing community. And I want to make sure we spend some time talking about that. And first, um, you just mentioned Angela Walters. So you live in Kansas city, (laughs) which my goodness, I mean, I haven't been to Kansas city, but I feel like (laughs) it just seems like a place with such a strong artist community and, you know, Hallmark is headquartered there which probably gives kind of an anchor in a way I imagine of like all of these incredibly artistic people who work for Hallmark. Um, and maybe they're artistic, uh, artistic spouses and, and kids <laughs> and, and everything. But, but there also just seems to be a really strong maker community in general. There absolutely is. And it's interesting,
1: like in the last several years, especially in the sewing industry, books that have come out, you know, a lot of people have written books that live in Kansas City. And they're all people I know, they're my friends from Quilt Guild that, you know, we've all been friends for many years. And uh it's just really fun to see that happen with everybody. And not just in the sewing community, but you know, the maker community in general. That Kansas City is um there are a lot of things to love about it. And one of the things that I think attracts a lot of people who are creatives is that it's got a low cost of living. You know, you're not, you're not going to be unable to afford to live somewhere. And there are a lot of people in a concentrated area. It's not a huge metropolitan area. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, you can't, it doesn't take forever to get from one spot to the other. And, uh, there's a lot of people that live and work, uh, near downtown or, um, in the Crossroads area. There's a lot of, it's called the Crossroads area in Kansas City. There's a lot of artists and um, different types of media that that are working there. And it's just a, a neat hub and a neat way to like go look at other artists with the people that you do this other type of art with. Uh, it's just, it's a very fun place to be.
0: Yeah. And the Kansas City Star um you know uh features featured quilts for years in the yes. in the newspaper yes. um, which I found to be really fascinating too absolutely they did and I think that um it's interesting to see people use
1: traditional methods from or traditional blocks like that and and spin them around and and do new things with them and the there are a lot of guilds in the area, and some of them, you know, are, one of the people that worked in my, was in my guild, worked for Kansas City Star Books whenever they were publishing uh, books in the craft industry, in the craft world. Um, so there's a lot of overlap and Kansas City and art.
0: Yeah, really cool. So so that takes me to um, the founding of the Kansas City Modern Quilt Guild, which it sounds like you were pretty instrumental in working on. And I'm sure that was a huge job, um, but probably a pretty satisfying one to see a community that you built continue on. So you want to talk a little bit about what that was like and how you sort of gathered that first group? Sure,
1: and in fact um I cannot I can take like a tiny, tiny, tiny portion
0: of the credit, but um there's
1: a lot of people who uh kind of came together like a perfect storm, really uh, I had seen on because of blogs being a thing <laughs> back in the day uh, I'd seen uh Elisa and Latifah post about the l a Modern quilt Guild having its first meeting. And I think I saw that in like October of 2009, which coincidentally was the same month that my middle son or my middle child was born. And uh, so, you know, I'm in this like newborn <laughs> stupor of like <laughs> not getting sleep. And I see these posts about this uh, guild and I think, oh my gosh, I would love to have that. And right around the same time, Jackie Garing had posted something on her blog that made me realize that she lived in the Kansas city area because I had didn't realize that she lived near Kansas city. So I sent her an email having never met her and said, Hey, <laughs> are you seeing what they're doing in LA? I totally think we should do that. <laughs> and so we emailed back and forth. And I still have those emails. And, and I was like, I just had a baby. I'm on maternity leave until January. Uh, I think, I want to get together, uh, so we met at a Panera and, uh, my Graham, my now eight-year-old, was in a little infant carrier, and we kind of hashed out an organizational meeting, and um, happened. the organizational meeting happened in December, and we had our first official meeting in January of 2010. And the people that were at that first meeting, Lauren Hunt, I met for the very first time. She ended up taking the pictures for my book. Alex Ledgerwood, uh, who I count as one of my very dear friends from quilt guild she was there she now has a book in the sewing world um it was just an interesting storm of people that were all there and i think there were like 32 of us and now the guild has grown to you know well over 150 or 175 people wow and it's um it's it's a lot of fun and it's just um people were so excited to meet people in person that they either maybe had heard about or um, maybe had read their blog, but just to have another person and someone just, when you say, Hey, look, I made this. If you say that to your neighbor, they might say, Oh, neat. But you say, Hey, look, I made this to somebody who gets it. It's, I mean, it's like an instant connection. So that was, I mean, I, remember that day in that meeting, I will always remember that. It was a very fun day. We left there thinking this is going to be so fun.
0: <laughs> so who were they? Who were, I mean, who are the people and maybe who are they now? The people who who come to or are part of the Kansas City Modern Cult Guild, are they Younger people are they, you know, women, men, people from all different backgrounds. I'm just wondering who they are. Right, it's a really amazing, a
1: wonderful mix of people of all ages. You know, there are people my age, people younger than me, my mom, my mom's age, older than my mom. There are men, um, couples. There, it's there are people who work in fields not related to any kind of art at all. There are people that work in like their work at Hallmark or spouses of people who work at Hallmark or other creative uh, locations. And I think that that's what makes it great is that it's a mix of people of, you know, all different types and ages. And it's also, it's almost more of a regional guild, if you ask me, because you have people from Kansas and Missouri because Kansas City straddles both states. We have, we have um, one of the officers that's one of the officers now drives down from Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> so there are people that come from, you know, an hour out, like my mom would have to drive over an hour to get to the guild. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a regional thing, really, I think.
0: But, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And it's neat to hear that it's a really diverse group of people. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that quilting is battling is the stereotype of who is a quilter. Um, but I think if you really look, uh, and it doesn't take that much looking, you'll see that quilters are everyone, there's lots of different people, Mm -hmm. absolutely, and
1: it's just I think they're also some of the most funny people I have been around because I mean, show and tell <laughs> when people are showing a quilt and, you know, describing it, there's always something funny that, that people and if you ask me for example, I wouldn't be able to come up with one right now. But <laughs> uh it's part comedy hour, part guilt <laughs> <guild> meeting. <laughs> Sounds
0: pretty entertaining. Yeah. It's fun.
1: It's a good group. It's a good group. I don't get to go nearly as often as I want anymore,
0: but uh I, I absolutely love the nights that I do get to go. Um, And so I want to make sure we talk about School of Sewing. So you wrote this book. It came out in 2014. It was published by Lucky Spool. Um, And it is a totally unique book, I think, because besides being a how-to sewing book, which we're all really familiar with, it's also got this like narrative arc where you brought together a group of strangers and then taught them to sew. And in the process, they become friends and you kind of like, it's almost like reality TV in a way (laughs) you like (laughs) take us through their journey. So talk about like that. What, what was the concept? Did this like occur to you one day and then how (laughs) it, how it became this book? Yes. Okay. So, uh, There are many ways
1: that people write books and there are many ways that people send in proposals and think about books. This book, I don't know, it kind of broke whatever mold I had in my mind for how books happen. So um, I have been asked, and I think that probably anybody who sews um, has been told by somebody that they know, oh, I have a sewing machine, I just don't know what to do with it, or I don't know how to use it, or it's, you know, I got it from my aunt or my grandma and it just sits in a closet. That ha- happens to so many people because I feel like sewing skipped a generation for many people, not for everyone, but for many people. And so in a matter of about t- a two to three week period, I had eight different friends, neighbors, childhood friends, people I used to work with, that that had said to me something about how they had the sewing machine, they just don't know how to use it, and it typically was followed by, could you teach me? (laughs) So um, I used to just send people like a list of, oh, here's where you could go to, you know, check out a class. But I thought, it's like the sign that the universe like hitting you on the side of the head when that many people ask in a short period of time. So I thought, okay. So I sent them all an email and I said, if you're serious about wanting to learn, I am serious about wanting to teach you. So here's what I would propose. And I say, we should get together once a month for a year. We'll do one project each time. They'll be small. They'll be useful. And the end, you are going to make a quilt and you will like it. <laughs> so... Um, That's kind of where we started. And so they came over to my house the first night and I posted a picture on Instagram of them around my kitchen table. My mom came as my teacher's assistant to give me a second set of hands. So I had, I mean, Rhett, our youngest was a newborn. (laughs) He was just a baby, like four months old or something. And, uh, we kind of went from there. So we were a couple months into it. And then, um, my husband and I were on our way across Missouri across I-70 to St. Louis to my niece's birthday party. And I get this email on my phone from Suzanne and I wasn't able to go to market that year. And she said, Oh, I was hoping to meet with you.
0: Uh, I'm starting this publishing company. I'd love to get a book proposal from you. And we should just clarify that this is Suzanne Woods who owns and is the publisher of Lucky School, but she, but Lucky School at that time, it sounds like was was just becoming, it a was thing. just yeah. becoming a thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah.
0: So yes. Thank you for clarifying. No I sure. <laughs> I know. Suzanne was lucky Spool.
1: So she, uh, said, I'd love to get, talk to you and get a book proposal from you. And we, she and I had talked off and on just, just as casual acquaintances from the quilt market industry, just because of my sewing pattern business for a couple of years. So I, we knew each other, but, uh, I had not, um, known about lucky Spool yet. So, She sent that email, and I read it while my husband had gone over to the counter at the food court at the Columbia Mall, where we stopped for lunch. He was in line to get lunch. I was wrangling three kids at the table, and I read that email, and I thought, I know exactly what book I would propose, because I wanted there to be a book that I could work through with my students and my friends. I call them my students. They're my friends. (laughs) So I wanted to have a book that I could work project by project through with them, but I Knew that we wanted to do small things that were instantly useful and that did not involve apparel, um, because I knew there are t- so many different sizes. I didn't want to specify women. I wanted, you know, a, c- a good cross section of projects. So, I'm looking at this email. He's still getting food. <laughs> he comes back with this tray of food, and I was like, I literally said to
0: him, "A lot has happened while <laughs> <laughs> you." That's a great story. You need to sit down. The whole (laughs) world has changed while you were over there. (laughs) While you were getting sandwiches. So um,
1: between Columbia and St. Louis, which is the second half of the trip from Kansas City to St. Louis, I didn't have a piece of paper or pencil, so I wrote the book proposal on his iPad. um, And I wrote, Lauren Hunt would take the pictures, and I wrote down all the projects that we do, and I'd say the girls will be in the story, their stories will be woven into it. Uh, So I wrote her an email back when we got back to uh, Kansas City at the end of the weekend and I said, uh, I know exactly what I would want to write and this is it. And if you do not like it, it's okay. I will cry about it for a day then <laughs> I will get over it. Um, but if you do like it, I'd love to talk. And she loved the idea. Thankfully, it was like, yes, the girls need to be – the girls, the women need to be in the story, and um, those are great projects, and I think we should – I think we should do it. So that's how the book happened. Um, we'd been in, having classes for several months, and then the book entered the storyline. It was really important to me, though, that we not fake it. Uh, granted, we – we dressed nicely for the photo shoot and we were mostly sewing in yoga pants and t-shirts late at night in the actual classes. But, but the, um, I did not want to fake the timeline because these were eight real women with real families and real jobs. And I could not, you know, say, well, I got a, I got a manuscript deadline guys. we got to do all these projects in a week. So, um, Suzanne was very, very like true to that storyline and said, we'll keep it the same. Here's when the manuscript can be due. And, kind
0: of happened that way. So, and so, so two things, one is um, I I just think having written book proposals myself, um, the ones where, you know, immediately exactly (laughs) like the whole table of contents, you can write it in five minutes, (laughs) you know um, versus the ones where you're struggling to write the table of contents, to create the sample project that should give you that feedback, like as a signal as to which of these ideas is the right idea. Um, So anyway, I just, I think that that happened to me as well. And, and, and I think you need to recognize in yourself um, which one of these works. And so, and so when it does flow that fast, there is a, that, that that's a good sign. Um, But the other thing is when you spent the year with this group of women, um, were there things that you learned from them that got incorporated into the book that you didn't expect or didn't have, you know, in that initial sort of sketch of what it was going to be?
1: You know, I think that one of the things that, um, I loved and I love, i really valued getting from them is the, the, the fact that they didn't know each other at all. Like a couple of them knew each other, but they all knew me. They didn't know each other. Um, but the, the tips about building a community that way, I love weaving those in. But also their uh, mistakes that that happened along the way. You know, everybody had a project that did not go well for them. Like there was everybody had that one, <laughs> so and they can all tell you which one it was. Um, it was kind of a different one for each of them where they just were having an off night. And I I loved being able to use those moments in the book um, to talk about you know overcoming that and things to look out for and weaving extra tips into the project instructions themselves that if it was one of my regular patterns, I probably wouldn't have done as many tips as I did. I would have done some for sure, but, um, just little things from sitting there with people who are brand new sewers, you know, um, it's a different mindset and focus for your writing too. If it's a person who is brand new to sewing.
0: Yes. And teaching is very valuable that way as well, um, which is to say that you may not anticipate the mistakes and problems that people have, but Mm -hmm. when you teach in person and you've taught it to uh, several groups, you see, um, you know, this is where they run into trouble and here's how you can prevent that trouble from happening. um, And it really strengthens the instructions.
1: Yep. Yep. It Mm -hmm. was, it was an amazing experience. And I, I, um, when the book came, it was like, no, a yearbook signing party. <laughs> so we, had a little, we had everybody over and uh, got to look at it, and they just so them seeing all of it in print. and you know, I'm just so proud of everything that they made and the things they've made since. and and it's it was a really awesome experience. And the book, I mean, I, I got I, it it was and is everything and more than I thought I hoped it would be when I wrote that proposal. like it was my voice was still there, the pictures. Lauren Hunt did an amazing job. Um, it's just, I love that book. I love it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I hear that a lot from lucky spool authors. By the way. Um, oh
1: yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah and it, I don't
0: it, hear yeah. that from authors of all publishing houses. I will say. Well,
1: I I know that it was important to Suzanne that you know
0: that uh, the people that I got you know included.
1: I think this is probably true of all of her, her authors about included in you know things like the cover and um, the title and just all of that. It was, it was a really wonderful experience. Um, I think people, we we built our house and people always say, oh, the process of building a house is so hard. And oh, the process of writing a book is so hard. I really love both processes. I loved building our house. I loved writing the book. I, I just, I loved being part of those experiences. So um, they're both things I would totally do again.
0: <laughs> and people can take this book and they can either work through it independently if they want to learn to sew Um, Because you really show them how to shop for a machine, how to shop for fabric. And these are things that are really overwhelming in the beginning um, when you're just getting started in a new hobby or a new pursuit. Um, Or people can take this book as a teacher and use it basically the way you had wanted, which was basically Mm -hmm. like a curriculum. Um, Or if they're even just like a peer of friends and want to work together to work through it, like almost like a workbook sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, So so, have you seen groups do all of those
1: things? Yes, I have. And it has been the coolest experience. Um, I have had people who who knew how to sell, but wanted to kind of refine some things. And they've written to me saying, I used your book and I um, and kind of working through it and kind of reteaching myself some things. I've had a lot of men email me saying they've used it because it doesn't – it's not girly. It doesn't have skirts and – and r- oh, there's one ruffle. <laughs> they can omit the ruffle. But um, I've had a lot of men say they've been using it. I've had a lot of shops that will use it to teach beginning sewing classes like in a series. And, um, other people that are individuals that, you know, get up, get people in their neighborhood or get people in their you know, local library or something to get together to sew. Uh, so all of those things. And every time I hear one, I think that is just awesome. The coolest one though, um, one of my favorite stories, um, was, um, someone told me that their sister or sister-in-law used it to teach some women, um, who were uh, refugees to sew, to earn money for their families, to, to sew just simple projects and use that. And when she told me, I mean, I just, that was, I would have never dreamed that someone would do that with a book. And I thought that was that's really powerful and meaningful. And I loved, loved hearing that. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's so neat to see what's, what, you know, it's now it's in everybody's hands, what they can do with it.
1: Right. It's like to say something life of its own that you, it's like a kid, you have this vision for it and then they'd kind of do their own thing too.
0: So. And I know you posted on Instagram, not too long ago about another book proposal that you had, put together in 2011 and it wasn't accepted. And I also wanted to talk about that because I also have put together a book proposal, maybe around, it was a few years after that, Mm -hmm. um, that didn't go anywhere. And I just think that very few people talk about the ones that don't go anywhere where they spend so much time and effort Mm -hmm. and hope and dreaming about this and sending it off and waiting. And it gets, you know, however far along the chain before it dies. And, um, and those, those ideas, I don't know, they linger. So, so what was that experience like uh, for you that, that one?
1: Um, I, it was one, it was, I wrote it when we were living in San Diego and I looking back now, I know that it was good that it wasn't wasn't accepted. And like you said, like the, the ones that you write and like, you just have everything on paper instantly, you know, exactly what it should be. That's the one where you know where your heart is. And that one was a great, I I liked doing proposal. I I still, I would have loved the book, but, um, it just, just didn't go. It kind of got quite a way through the process and then it was a, it won't work. And I was sad. (laughs) So, um, I think that now if that, if that book had happened, school of sewing would have never happened. Uh, I just know that it wouldn't have. So I think that it was a big blessing in disguise. And I think it is a great way to show like I I kept that binder. I almost I was sorting my sewing room. I think the picture you're talking about you're talking about is uh I was sorting my sewing room and came across the binder that had the projects in it and the book the whole book proposal. And you know, illustrator images of what the projects would look like. And I almost pitched it because I was like, oh, well, that was an interesting time in my life, you know, (laughs) And so, I kept it, though, because I want to show my kids like I put it right next to the manuscript of my book that ended up getting published. I put them next to each other on the shelf like this, you know, a a failure or, you know, a, a setback can absolutely be something to motivate you and be a blessing in disguise. So
0: that's so beautiful for sure. So, And I think it's great that people, uh, you know, your willingness to share about about one that didn't work because right. I, I feel like that actually is part of almost everybody's story. Oh, yeah. Um, they oh, have yeah. the things that didn't work and yes. um, there's nothing to show for it, you know? Right. right. <laughs> so, I feel like most people, maybe not everybody, maybe there are people who never have a dud, but
2: <laughs> some people,
1: would, most people would probably say there was always a project or a book or, a, you know, whatever that was just a dud, you know,
0: it was like, oh, well moving on. <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. Exactly. And and yeah. that that's not something to set you back permanently. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so on kind of a, a more upbeat note, um, also <laughs> talking about your Instagram, can you um, speak about Operation Cinnamon Roll? Oh,
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So Operation Cinnamon Roll is something
1: that happened kind of uh, very unplanned several years ago. It was about Three or four years ago, I can't remember now. Um, I had always wanted to make cinnamon rolls. I wanted to be able to have a good recipe to make cinnamon rolls, but. Like that book proposal, everything else I had tried to make with cinnamon rolls had been a dud. So I finally found a good recipe, and I was so excited about it. So we started making cinnamon rolls for a few friends and neighbors uh, a couple Christmases ago, and we would deliver them and like kind of late at night because it took a long day to make everything. And my husband would play guitar, and we go sing. We wish you a merry Christmas at their stop and then leave. And now it's kind of like a thing. Like we do it (laughs) and it's like, you know, 15 families that we make cinnamon rolls for and every year we do it. And it's kind of, it's just, it's super fun. Like we spend a day making them and then get in the car and deliver them. And then last year, my husband was out of town and I think one of my kids was a sleepover or whatever the day I made them. And so it was like me driving around with my littlest elf. <laughs> it would fall asleep in the back seat, But um, it's really fun to show up at someone's doorstep And they know you're coming, you know. <laughs> you say, are you going to be home? <laughs> and then there you are with cinnamon rolls. That's and, awesome. Uh, so yeah, um,
0: maybe I can publish a link to, you know, whether the recipe's online or in a cookbook. Oh, yes. But either way, so people it can.
1: Is, yes. Yeah. And, It's, um, it's a woman named, um, Kimberly and her website is called the driveway of life. And if you Google driveway of life, cinnamon rolls, she has a post and it has pictures, um, step by step. And, uh, it was the first time I've ever made them and thought, oh my gosh, this actually worked.
0: <laughs> so. Okay. I'm totally, now my mouth is watering. I'm like, <laughs> Does I really want one. And so she's
1: very, she's a very big proponent of lots
0: of cream cheese frosting. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> Agreed. Um, Okay. So we have that. We'll count that as one of your recommendations because (laughs) that's just delicious and sounds really good. So, um, But you do actually have a few other recommendations as well. And one of them is a journal called One Line a Day. And I am the worst journaler. I guess I'm a good blogger, (laughs) but I'm not a good paper journaler.
1: Yes. I love this. It's called one line a day and it's a five-year journal. It's a little teal book with gold edges. And I first heard about it from Camille Ross Kelly, who is a fabric designer uh, with Moda and writes her own patterns for her company's called Thimble Blossoms. And, uh, she posted about it many, many years ago. And I had been looking for a way to document things that my kids were doing or that I was doing, but I didn't want to, I couldn't journal like a whole page, you know, I just, there's no time. So it's, um, two or three sentences a day. And what's cool about the book is that each page is covers one day for five years in a row. So it'll say like January 1st at the top and there's five spots. So January 1st, 2017, January 1st, 2018, they're all going to be on the same page. And so as you go through, you go through the book once and then you go back through it, you know, five times and you can look back on that exact day, three years ago, you know, oh, three years ago, Eleanor said this funny thing. Well, mine, I have things that my kids did, things that we did as a family, things I did as a business, like these patterns came today, or this happened for the book today. Um, So it's interesting to see you can use it as uh, for – if you're a parent with kids, you could use it professionally with whatever your career sh- career is. You could use it creatively, like to document what you worked on. Uh, I love it, and it's inexpensive and it's little. It's one of my favorite things to give as a gift to people. So yeah, it's I was gonna say it gift. sounds
0: like a great baby gift it's an too. Awesome
1: gift, yes. And they make some that are like now they've kind of people have kind of caught on to it, and they make some that are you know ones for kids and ones for, you know, there's a one, I think a pink one that has a little baby image on the front, but I like the traditional teal, you know, the classic original one line a day. And I'm on my second one now. So it's, it's been going for a while. I love giving it to people as a gift. So
0: yeah, it just reminds me, it's like the analog version of Facebook memories. Totally. Totally. In <laughs> fact, what's funny is I've actually used some of my Facebook memories to go back and fill in on days that I've
1: missed. <laughs> i peep it on my nightstand and some days I'm better about putting in, putting something down than others.
0: But you know, if I get forgive myself for forgetting a day or two, then I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Forgiveness is important when you're trying yes. to do something every day, for sure. <laughs> yes, so, yes. okay. And you wanted to recommend the Young House Love Podcast. So I have listened to the Young House Love Podcast a couple of times and the ones that I've listened to have been really good. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about what Um, what this podcast is and why you like it? Sure. Uh, So the Young House Love website was one I
1: followed for many years. Uh, They updated and DIYed their house and that it became a very, very big thing. And then they stepped away from their blog Completely, and that that was really interesting. And they were, you know, interviewed by several newspapers about why they stepped away from their blog. But then in recent years, they've come back and they've started a podcast. And they still blog occasionally, but I think they've turned off their comments, which was, you know, I think a lot to maintain because they were responding to everything. So their podcast is awesome. I love their that they're um, just very jovial and friendly, and cover lots of different topics and, uh, quirky. I, um, loved on their blog, how when Sherry, it's John and Sherry, they're a married couple. Uh, Sherry would talk about wanting to learn to use her sewing machine and she'd call it, Oh brother. <laughs> and so, um, she would write about the mishaps with her sewing machine. And I actually had her in mind as I wrote my book, like that's a person who I would want to read this book because I would want her to succeed. And uh right about the time they stepped away from their blog, I emailed her and I said, Hey, I've got this book. Can I send it to you? And so she's like, Oh my gosh, sure. So I emailed her and I sent it to her and then she wrote back that they got it, and she loves it, and she's kind of sewn some a couple things. And um I keep waiting for her to maybe say that she's sewing because I would love to hear how she's doing with her sewing machine. But I love mm-hmm. hearing the projects as they um, work on their houses and it's a lot about paint colors and arranging rooms and, but not in a fancy
0: highfalutin way, if you will. Mm-hmm. And they, it's, it's like highly produced. I mean, it's much more produced than this show. For example, they've got like musical interludes and theme <laughs> show
2: sound effects. <laughs>
0: things I don't have, um, which I'm always like really impressed by when other people have them. And I'm like, wow, that's a really nicely produced show. Uh, (laughs) So, okay, good one. And then you also wanted to recommend a, um, what you're calling a seam gauge or a cloth guide.
1: Yes. And different companies call them different things, but what it is, and if People are picturing their sewing machine. It lays on the flat bed of your sewing machine and it screws in, or they do make magnet versions. But mine is that I also on a Janome, and you screw it into the base of the sewing machine. But it's like a T-shaped guide, the letter T, and it helps guide your fabric along um, to go into the the feed dogs, and it if you want to have a perfect half inch seam allowance, you can adjust it. So it's a half inch. And I absolutely love it. Mine's permanently attached to my sewing machine. Uh, you could use it for a quarter inch too. Although I typically use my quarter inch foot more that way. Uh, but I love, love, love using it, especially if you're sewing with curves and a half inch seam allowance on clothing. It just, Mm. I just, it, it makes it easy to make sure you're not like, you know, going all wonky, but they're an inexpensive thing. And, uh, between that and an extension
0: table, I think those two things make a big difference in and enjoyment of sewing, Yeah. And we'll definitely link to that so people can see what it looks like and see Mm -hmm. whether they think it would be Mm -hmm. good on their machine. Yeah. Um, super cool. I don't have one, so I'm going to take a look as well. (laughs) If Um, you ever,
1: if you sell very many half inch seams, it's, I think it's super useful.
0: Okay. Good to know. Well, Shay, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshing Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. I have enjoyed talking to you immensely Abby. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog walshynaps.com where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Pin Peddlers. Did you know you can have high-quality custom pins and charms made especially for your group or business? Pin Peddlers will help you create the perfect statement piece to let the world know who you are. Shop owners, give them a call about wholesale opportunities as well. Save 15% off your next order from pinpeddlers.com by using the code NAPS, N-A-P-S. Pin Peddlers, love what you do, wear what you love. Thank you so much, Pin Peddlers. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.